Preston, it's great to be focused, what I would say, on a strategic mission, right, to secure U.S. energy and defense supply chains. So company leadership is locked in on finding the best, most strategic assets to build these domestic supply chains. So these guys, you know, my boss and other members of the leadership team, they have experienced on the ground defense of U.S. interests. And they even know how to bring that mentality now to the rare earth industry. So Drew Horn, he, you know, when he was a Green Beret on um, tour in Afghanistan, he encountered a rare earth deposit there that's, you know, widely known and explored. And he knows what it's like to have strategic minerals fall in the wrong hands of a geopolitical adversary. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and on the show today, the importance of rare earth mining to our nation's sustainability goals policy that is being passed to enhance our rare earth mining capabilities domestically, what companies like GreenMet are doing to build domestic supply chains of rare earth elements, and China's stronghold on the REE market and what it means for the U.S. in terms of environmental sustainability and national security. Our guest on the Green Hour today is an exceptional young lady who is working to solve one of our nation's most pressing issues, rare earth mining. Emma Ernst attended Washington and Lee University and always felt a passion for policy. This led her to work in educational policy with the U.S. Department of Education, Meeting Street Schools, and Stanford's Hoover Institution. From there, she interned in the prestigious White House Internship Program in the office of Vice President Mike Pence. In her internship, she worked with the administration during the COVID-19 response, the 2020 election, and the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. She later served as the Special Assistant for Communication and Strategy in the Council of Economic Advisors in the White House. From there, she worked with Congressman Morgan Griffith, who was the Chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. Today, Emma is working to solve a bipartisan issue in our country, which is rare earth mining. Rare earth elements, or REEs as they're sometimes called, are necessary components of more than 200 products across a wide range of applications, especially high-tech consumer products such as cell phones, hard drives, electric vehicles, and flat screen monitors and televisions. Significant defense applications include electronic displays, guidance systems, lasers, and radar and sonar systems. These rare earth elements are extracted from the earth through mining, and only one rare earth mining facility in the U.S. is open. According to an article by Politico, as of today, China accounts for 63% of the world's rare earth mining, 85% of rare earth processing, and 92% of rare earth magnet production. China has a stronghold on the REE market and it is a problem of environmental sustainability and national security. Emma is the Government Affairs Director at GreenMet, which accelerates the development of safe, reliable, rare earth mineral supply chains. Former Green Berets founded GreenMet after they realized the overwhelming need for sustainable and secure supply chains for rare earth metals, magnets, and green steel in North America. GreenMet has made it a priority to flip the switch on rare earth mining. We have vast mineral wealth in the U.S. and it is sitting, waiting to be extracted. Rare earth mining has become one of our nation's most pressing issues when considering the environmental effects and the national security risk when doing business with a nation like China. The work GreenMet is doing will become increasingly important in years to come and people like Emma are leading the charge for a greener, more sustainable future. I'll start with an adage that my dad taught me that life is relationships, the rest is just details. So that is true from my journey from college in Washington and Lee, all the way to where you can find me today, which is in Washington, DC. So I, you know, as you noted, I have an educational policy background. 
So in college, I was a politics major, but did some internships at the Department of Education, did an ed policy internship at Meeting Street Schools, which is a public charter school, um, and also spent some summertime out at the Hoover Institution doing just broad um, policy analysis at their summer policy boot camp, which I recommend to all of your viewers. It's how I met some of the previous guests on your podcast as well. Um, and then after college, I came to Washington, D.C. and was part of the White House internship program, which is a great opportunity to see how the inner workings of the White House work and to assist offices in the executive office of the president. I particularly was in the office of the vice president, so worked the office of Mike Pence during the COVID crisis. Also, it was during the election of 2020 and the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. So I really got a taste for how the executive branch works at a quick pace with you know, the unity, secrecy, and dispatch, which is unique to our president. But after the presidential election, I transitioned to Capitol Hill, and I worked there for a year for um, Congressman Morgan Griffith. He is on the Energy and Commerce Committee. He's now taking over the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. And as a lawyer, he reads every bill that he votes on. And I really got a taste for how legislation is crafted, how members work together on critical issues. You know, Energy and Commerce is a committee with huge jurisdiction. Um, and I also learned how external people advise Congress on issues. So seeing how external stakeholders worked with internal government policy staffers now led me to the world of government affairs, where I am today. Um, I'm director of government affairs for GreenMet, and excited to tell you a little bit more about what that means today. But I've been working with our team here um, and our CEO, Drew Horn, for over a year, combining my White House and Capitol Hill experience with this new emerging issue of critical minerals and rare earth elements. Um, I want to unpack a little bit of this. So first with educational policy. So how important is, you know, crafting and creating policy for education for the next generation of leaders, right? On this show, we talk all about sustainability, but let's just talk more general speaking and, and talk about how important is policy to push the education for the future generation? Sure. Yeah. So Preston, I mean, education, when you think about it, America's students become America's workers, become America's leaders. So we always should be concerned about education. I mean, even in my job now, I'm concerned about how we're educating America's minors and metallurgists. You know, what does it look like not only to have healthy foundations of reading, writing, arithmetic, but all the way up to the technical trades um, and college preparation? I think there's multiple pathways in our country. The beauty is that people you know, have the choice of how they want to pursue life, liberty, and happiness in this country. Um, but it has to be in a, a way where families can make choices that, um, you know, are good for their students, um, fit their community's needs. And it's something that I'm increasingly learning about. You know, obviously, I'm not an expert in it, but we've seen this field become more important as America as a country has national needs. And we see our students and workers as being the solutions, especially in an increasingly global economy. So in Georgia, I don't know if this is with every state, but I know Georgia specifically, we have what's called CTAE pathways. CTAE is, is your career technical um, trades that um, at my high school, you had to graduate in one of these trades to actually go on and graduate and get your diploma. So what we had was, you know, we had a pathway for marketing. We had a pathway for culinary. We had a pathway for cosmetology, pathway for healthcare science, law and public safety, you name it. There's a lot of different things. And the, the problem that I saw with this was um, in marketing, that was the only business pathway we had. My senior year, there was only three students total in this entire pathway of a school about a thousand students. So a lot of the kids would filter into these other pathways where, you know, they didn't have to, to do as much work. You know, they were thinking, OK, I can get an easy grade. I can just move on, move on, move on with this. Well, bring this up because I'm um, actually recently this morning I saw. One of our state senators in Georgia, he posted um, on, on LinkedIn that he was promoted to a board, um, I forget what it's called, in Georgia that's looking at CTAE programs. And I actually commented on it and I said, we need sustainability pathway in Georgia for CTAE because kids and education is just so important that they, they understand and that they learn about sustainability or they learn, and in your instance, mining and, and the different mining principles, basics of mining. Um, and it's just very, very, very important that 
um, our kids grow up and learn that these specific skills. I mean, in the past episodes, I've talked about, you know, some kids will go to school and they'll know their their specific subjects. You know, they'll know math. You know, they'll know algebra. They might know um, what happened in, in World War One, World War Two, but giving them something like critical mining, like you're doing, or sustainability, is just going to help us as a country in the future. And secondly, what I would say, Emma, is I'm a little bit jealous of you because I actually I applied for the the White House internship program, and I think that if I would have gotten it, I would have been in the same class as you. Um, I was I was one of those naive kids that just thought. I would get whatever I applied for, um, and that didn't happen. But no, that's that's really incredible. And that's the next thing I want to unpack is the White House internship program. What kind of work, you touched on a little bit, but what kind of work were you involved in specifically with, with the vice president? So a big you know part of the time period when I was there is the vice president was often on the road traveling. So figuring out what groups on the ground in the community um, would be interested in talking about the policy that the vice president was on tour for, essentially. Um, And, you know, these were official trips because any political trips were not handled through the White House. That would be handled through the campaign. Um, But, you know, he was focused on some aspects of education policy. He was focused a lot on family policy, especially as we thought about the issues that surrounded the Supreme Court nomination. So thinking about who he was literally sitting at a table with at these events, hearing from the community, hearing from the stakeholders, what their priorities are. Um, I might draft a memo on who I thought should be around that table or, you know, send some news clips of this is what the communities cared about in the weeks leading up to the vice president's visit, or here are some accomplishments of the Trump-Pence administration that's surrounding this visit that can both encourage and be built on in future visits to this community. A lot of strategic work, you know, an intern is behind the scenes, but the beauty is you get a little bit of everything um, and you think about the kind of work that you'd want to do when you return in a non-intern position. So I recommend everyone apply for the White House internship. It's a great experience for all ages, all seasons of life. Right, right. So um, how intensive is that process of the, the White House internship program? I'm guessing, I mean, like I said, I applied for it initially, but I'm guessing that it's several, several rounds that you have to go through and there's a lot of a lot of work that you have to do. So how intensive is that process? Yes, I applied twice. Um, I actually think I opened the application three times. So um, really went through the application process twice. The second time I was successful. Um, I think it's important to think about what your goals are, how you know, the different offices that are working for the president, you know, match your skills and your goals, advocating for yourself as a candidate, and also, you know, thinking about people that you know in D.C. that may be connected. You know, like I said at the beginning, life is relationships. The rest is just details. So I had some invaluable mentors and advocates that helped me along the way um, and which helped your application stand out while you walk in and stand on your own two feet. So the bulk of what we'll be talking about today is around these rare earth elements. And I'm so happy that that I connected with you, Emma, because I knew nothing about um, REEs before um, I, I had met you. And it, it's pretty incredible to see just the whole industry and kind of what, what the U.S. is doing policy-wise to combat China's stronghold on the, the, the market of REEs. So when I say the word rare earth elements, could you describe to the audience what that means? Yes, happy to. You know, for a girl who also came into this industry one year ago, it's been an exciting journey, like I said, to pay attention to this emerging, what I would call re-emerging domestic industry. Because before the 1980s, um, we were producing and manufacturing our own rare earths and then what is an end product, the rare earth magnets, which we'll get into later. But to provide a definition, um, rare earth minerals or rare earth elements, sometimes abbreviated REEs, they are 17 elements on the periodic table. Most of them are the lanthanide elements, so one of the bars at the bottom. And they are part of the greater 50 critical minerals that have been designated by the U.S. Geological Survey. So that's a subcomponent of the Department of Interior, identifying what are the minical, the minerals that are critical to several industries in our country. Um, there's varying degrees of criticality. You know, we could talk about criticality to energy, um, which is what makes these um, 
minerals so critical to sustainability measures? Because if we want a greener future with clean technology, those are going to require batteries and magnets, which are all using these rare earth elements. Um, But there's also criticality to defense. Some of our key defense uh, applications and, and weapons are also using these elements. So identifying first which mineral we're talking about is something I always like to ask either a congressman or a policymaker, the staff, or even a client that wants to do business with GreenMet. Which elements are we talking about? And what's the criticality here? You know, what is the worst case scenario if we were to be cut off from any supply chains that we don't currently have in our backyard here in the U.S. or with our allied friends? So you touched on we had a, we had a stronghold. We we had we had a competitive advantage in the 1960s in in REEs, and then it kind of transitioned to now. You know, we now we only have one mine, and domestically that that's open. That's that's mining these these REEs. What is the issue of rare earth mining that you know in the 1960s? The reason that it was shut down. What's the issue? At least I should say environmentally. What's the issue with with rare earth mining? Sure. So I would say if you look at the U.S. timeline of rare earth production, um, as well as just mining overall, it is more of a question of specialization than of environmentally harmful practices. You know, there has been an increasing trend in maybe we would call it unfriendly conversation to mining overall. You know, there's even a roundtable or um, working on mining reform right now for the mining law. Um, that was written in the 1800s. So I would say that over time, our country has chosen just to specialize in other industries. And what happens in specialization, as any student of economics would know, is that you offshore some of those capabilities to other countries, which generally is a good thing. You know, if you are better at something else, you um, might want to take advantage of that time differential, that cost differential. But I think the problem was we unknowingly were offshoring um, and despecializing in this rare earth mining industry until now we've realized that we've lost most of it. And because the regulatory environment has changed so much, it's been difficult to rebuild this mining industry, but also to follow it is the processing industry. So I would commend, you know, our regulatory environment. It's a good thing that the United States has acts such as the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, um, what is referred to as NEPA, which is the National Environmental Policy Act, to govern these issues. Um, We're head and shoulders above other countries on these sustainable practices and our adherence to sustainability principles. Uh, But I think what has happened is now there's this attitude that any mining is bad mining. And so that has significantly challenged this reshoring of the rare earth and larger, you know, largely critical mineral um, issue of, of building supply chains here. Right, right. There's a couple things there. The first time that we had spoke, Emma, I had mentioned that I went to school in Eastern Kentucky, right on the edge of Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia and Virginia, and how the the area was a big, big, big producer of, of coal back in the day. And there's a lot of abandoned coal mines there. So I, I wholeheartedly um, understand the point that a lot of people have their hesitancy towards mining just because of coal mining. It, it just produced a lot, a lot of negative effects to the community. I mean, you're talking black lung for the people that are going in, in, in these mines. You're, you're talking now, I mean, with coal mining communities in West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, th- there's a narcotic epidemic now because you had these people that were working in um, these mines and it was just terrible, terrible conditions. They're getting sick and they have to provide for their families um, so the only the only way that that they could keep going was let me pop some narcotics and let me keep going because my family needs me. So there's definitely in these these areas, especially in Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, where you've seen the effects of of negative mining, and rare earth mining, coal mining are two different ball games, right? Very different ball games. And like you said, the policy that the U.S. is passing right now and that they've passed in the last couple of years is going to clean up a lot of this stuff. I, I know in, um, I think it was the the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, I could be wrong on this, but I think in, in, in that law, one thing that the Biden administration is doing is going, going in and cleaning up these legacy pollution areas. So they're going up and, and cleaning up places, I would say, like in eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, 
that have these abandoned coal mines um, and they're going in and, and cleaning this stuff up so that the the areas, the communities aren't affected by the pollution because right now they're just sitting. The, the second thing I'll say is with with mining um, and, and with especially rare earth mining, um, you talked about basic economics, right? You have supply and demand, right? In the 1960s, we realized that the U.S., maybe we, we aren't as good at this. Let's offshore this to someone that is better. I mean, it's smart. But over time, if one one location, one, you say company, in this case, one country, gets a stronghold of the market, then they can they can really set the prices. They can set the distribution. They can set whatever they do. And so the next thing I want to unpack is specifically when we're talking about who controls the REE market, we're talking about China. And um, I had Max on here a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about national security, uh, specifically with China and Russia, and really with the semiconductors and the Chips and Science Act. But with, with this specifically, the REE market and China's stronghold, it's not only an issue of sustainability, but it's also an issue of national security. The next segment I want to go into is China's stronghold on the REE market and what we are doing as a country to, to combat that. Sure. Yes. Well, I want to touch briefly on your previous point about other ways that we can find rare earth elements. And you touched on the infrastructure laws provisions to find rare earth elements from coal ash, which is essentially, you know, the legacy remains of a mine. And that, you know, that method of rare earth, you might call it extraction or mining is something, you know, it's it's being referred to as innovation, um, sustainable, you know, methods of recovery. And, you know, another way that people are looking at this as well is looking in tailings ponds, which are literally sometimes ponds of mine waste left over from old gold mines or iron ore mines. And there's actually rare earth elements in these tailing ponds. So looking at, you know, these, you know, ponds or, um, abandoned mines, you know, that would traditionally be seen as a waste and seeing them as sources of these critical minerals is another exciting development, I think, on the industry. And it's something GreenMet is interested in. It's There's, you know, a lot of research to be done. Our Department of Energy is researching it. There's money in the infrastructure law for it. But I think it's a great story, right? Leaving a place great, you know, better than you found it and then filling a critical need. So like I said, there's a lot to be um, learned about this process, you know, when it comes to methods of uh, removing radioactive material, how you can store that in the United States, um, and then also, you know, how we're leaving it cleaner than we found it, these open pits, um, which leads me into talking about China, who, um, as a country and in their market, they are doing all the things that we are doing. So I, I don't think it's, you know, we need to increase mining to, you know, compete with China in this market, we need to be looking at coal ash, looking at tailings ponds, looking at recycling and recovering mining. I think it's, you know, people have broadly referred to energy production as all of the above. I think the same goes in rare earth minerals. So, you know, I would say we need to recover the mining because our nation, you know, we have vast mineral wealth in our backyard. You know, we have these minerals. Um, So looking at how to uncover that mining, which like you said, China um, does about 60% of the rare earth mining, um, but that's not counting the other territories um, and countries that they have control in. They have, you know, built infrastructure around, so they then have access to mines in South America and in Africa that also have these rare earth elements. Um, And then as you go what I would say is down the supply chain, if you think of mining as upstream, as you go down the supply chain into the processing and separating component, as well as the magnet production, that capability increases. Um, And we can trace also a connection to when U.S. rare earth production and mining was decreasing, Chinese rare earth production and um, mining was, was increasing because um, there's a famous operation, and it's called the Magna Quench operation that was in Indiana. What happened was a Chinese company came in and um, took over management of that mine. But unfortunately, after a couple of years, shut it down, took the technology, went over to China. So there's an issue not only of loss you know, of domestic capabilities, loss of specialization. There's also the key issue of technology transfer. Um, and so another, you know, the stronghold on the rare earth market 
you know, starts in up in the upstream, but all the way downstream, they now have these key licenses and patents over magnet technology that, you know, in order for the U.S. to recover those capabilities, it's going to have to be through some free market exchange, which is unlikely to happen, or working with our other allied partners, like some magnet producers that are in Japan. So that's, you know, I, I think it's important to think about in this market, like not how do we you know, counter and compete China, but how do we rebuild our domestic capabilities? Um, and so that means looking at our wealth of resources, but it also means working with allies and partners um, who also have an interest in rebuilding the domestic capabilities of the U.S., whether it's for energy purposes or what we're largely looked to as our defense capabilities as a reliable ally um, and as a stronghold, not only for protecting free markets, but protecting democratic values. So I would ask you, Emma, and we're going to get into green met later, but but specifically right now, would you say that um, obviously we talk about offshoring and the U.S. kind of dependence on China right now in the REE market? Would you say that over time, um, obviously the Trump administration and the Biden administration both took this issue to heart, and they both are, are prioritizing this issue? But I guess I would say previous administrations. Do you think that they were lax? on um, REE specifically, and that kind of caused China to keep gaining control of this market. Um, and really, is, is it China, was it China's administration that that really just took a hold of this when everyone else was kind of standing back and not really paying attention? I, I guess that's a lot of questions there, but I would, I guess the singular question I would ask is, do you think it was a, a administration problem where China was able to to grab such a large hold of this market? I don't know that I could point to one official or one administration, but what I would say is this, you know, transition in the market is entirely geostrategic. If you look at some of the Chinese, you know, public documents, their military strategies will say that, you know, economic security is national security. They'll list their top priorities being, you know, defense and energy and like as part of energy, you know, that is minerals. And so if you even look at, you know, and obviously their population is much larger scale than the U.S. is. But if you look at their workers in the sector, their, you know, national labs devoted just to rare earth minerals, um, their, you know, companies. And now we have to consider that the way that their market is functioned is largely subsidized by the government. And so even private companies can be, sitter, can be considered somewhat public as, you know, the government's priorities are aligning with commercial priorities. When those are in juxtaposition, government policy will prevail. That's not true in the United States and our capitalistic markets. Um, I think while we do have subsidies to critical industries, um, you're not seeing an overall subsidization, you know, privatization of these mineral um, industries or, or other industries for that fact, outside of maybe what you might call a national emergency or wartime efforts. With looking at politics and looking at policy and looking at different administrations, the policy that's being passed right now today will have such a huge impact in 20 years from now. And I mean, we're seeing that with REEs. Basically, it's just so interesting to, to look internally and say, wow, on Capitol Hill, what people are passing, this is going to impact us when we're when we're middle aged people and we have families and we're living life. So it's it's very important, I think, of, of who we who we elect in office. The older I get, the more important that I see that that is um, because they're, they're really redefining our future as a country. So I would yeah. say back back to China and specifically um, the REE market, I, I, I would say it is an issue of national security. If one country, especially a country who we would say is our enemy, who, who we're not, who we're not in, in great terms with, has such a stronghold of something that we need. So they have, have a resource that we need. I would say, since they have this large access um, of, of these of these minerals, they could restrict access to us. Um, I was actually doing some research um, a, a few days ago on this issue. 2019, the official newspaper for China's Communist Party warned that the country could cut off rare earth uh, mineral sales to the U.S. as a countermeasure in Trump's trade war. I'm um, obviously mm -hmm. Trump, the Trump administration. I mean, you were a part of it um, in your internship. They made it a big, big, big key to combat China in any way necessary, any way necessary. 
that specifically, I mean, we're in 2023, but if we look back to 2019, it's like, okay, China's China's telling us what they're going to do, that they're controlling all the sales. They're, they're really controlling our processing is what they're controlling of, of REEs. And I mean, geopolitically, if, if we don't have a good, um, a good relationship with them, they could cut off um, sales and restrict a- access for us. It's right. also it's also in a problem in national security. Um, as you mentioned earlier, some of these REEs are involved in our um, weaponry and in our, um, our our aircrafts for the for the military. So again, through research, um, I, I had seen, and, and this could change now, but it said to date, all of the F thirty fives that have been delivered to the U.S. military. Roughly 600 planes contain a Chinese magnet alloy in the jet's turbo machine. So I, I'm no I'm no engineer. I, I don't know the components of of a um, of a jet or, or, or these these military vehicles. But what I do know is, if we're getting components from someone we say is an enemy, I don't think that could be good. Does that mean that they could put a tracker on these magnets? I, I don't know. But all I do know is. It's not a good thing to be reliant on a nation like China. Yeah, Preston, I'd love to speak to that. We saw that in October, well, in September, the Pentagon had realized that our F-35 used in many major, you know, Pentagon operations and um, tours, our F-35s were dependent on this Chinese, you know, magnetic alloy that's in you know these planes. And so they had issued that we had to put a hold on the F-35 deliveries. It's September 2022. And in October, the DOD issued a national security waiver to keep delivering the F-35. So the Pentagon is not only you know aware of this issue and, and looking into it, but they're also recognizing that the defense industrial base has to you know continue procuring these aircrafts at this time. Now, one of the assistant secretaries over there did make a comment, maybe to your concern, that we've determined that this component is not, you know, compromised by any sort of, you know, tracking or or anything like that. You know, it is um, something that's related to the, you know, the power of the of the engine, as you said, the turbo machine. So so I thought that was an interesting note, but we also have to look at just last month. So we know that the Pentagon has issued this national security waiver to, you know, continue supplying the defense industrial base. Last month, China sanctioned Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, two of our biggest defense contractors, over their arms sales to Taiwan. They, you know, they said they're limiting any imports or exports that these companies do with China. This could massively affect our defense critical supply chains, and uh, we don't really know what these sanctions will entail yet. That has not been detailed but it's showing, you know, like you said, this tool that they saw in the trade war is also deployable now as tensions are rising over Taiwan. And by the way, it's not an unprecedented action on China's part. Look back at 2010 when China imposed a rare earth export control to Japan and Japan was cut off from that rare earth supply. Now you're seeing them grow in their own rare capabilities now. Um, to where they're still, you know, relying on some supply from China, but, you know, largely growing into their own, working with Australia. But where they were 10 years ago could be a good picture of how devastating it could be for the U.S. if this were to happen today. As I mentioned earlier, we talked a few weeks ago to Max about the semiconductor market and how Taiwan controls a lot of that, and all of East Asia really controls a lot of that market. And we were talking about you know, if, if China was to invade Taiwan, it would be it would be not only uh, affecting Taiwan, but the world in general because of semiconductors. And um, it's, it's, it's very interesting to think about really the small actions that nations can take that can impact everybody else, specifically with 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 China. And I, I would ask you this, um, if China was to cut us off entirely, I say they cut us off of these REEs, there's no more processing. We can't buy these materials from them. What do you think the U.S. What, what would the U.S. response be? I mean, what 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 do you think the U.S. and the Biden administration would do in response to that from China? Hmm. Well, I can't speak for what the administration might do. I can speak to what I know about our our capabilities with rare earths now, and it lies in you know we have stockpiles at the Pentagon. You know our 
National Defense Stockpile keeps a list of strategic materials, which looks very similar to the, you know, USGS critical minerals list. So we do have minerals on stockpile. Now, what the levels of those stockpiles are, we don't know. Um, you know, sometimes those are viewed as classified and presented to, say, the Senate Armed Services Committee in a classified setting. I would welcome that um, from the Pentagon. But um, also we have our allies, right? We have partners, we have free trade partners, you know, that was identified in the Inflation Reduction Act when we're thinking about who we want to work on battery minerals with. But there's a risk, right, Preston, if China cuts off the U.S. and doesn't want to supply to us anymore, and we then say, we have this huge need, we're going to go to our partners and, and allies and ask for minerals, they could say, you know what? Sorry, we need these for these for ourselves, right? If, if China does the same thing to our country as what they've done to the United States of America, we're not going to have the bandwidth to take care of our own needs and others. So I think that's something that we also have to consider is that we, we can rely on allies and partners. Um, but in, you know, in the instance that a major supplier in a global market um, starts restricting access, we have to look at domestic stockpiles and what they're capable of and particularly what minerals will be most critical to our energy and our defense. I mean, I, I would say it's basic business. You know, when I was in my last company, what we tried to do is, hey, we're not going to be relying on one supplier because if we are, they can control the price, um, that they can they can really cause us to have back orders for, for our sales and our shipping. Um, and what we tried to do was we tried to be as diverse as possible, having multiple suppliers just in case, let's say, hey, the machinery in this one place is out. We can't use it. Well, good thing we have another supplier because if not, we would have a 30% back order um, log if that wasn't the case. So I'm, I'm very excited to get into Green Mat in a second to, to, to discuss this and, and what, what you guys are doing. But I do want to touch on one thing before we get there. And that is about the one um, facility that we have in the U.S. Um, that, that is doing these, this rare earth mining. And that is in the, um, the Mountain Pass Mine in California's Mojave Desert. Um, and that's the U.S. Is only, that's the only rare earth mining and processing facility. With that being said, MP Materials is the one that owns this, this facility. But they are still shipping its concentrated ore to China for the next steps for the processing um, and, and, and for the, the completion of these minerals. So um, that, that is our singular place in, um, in the U.S. Um, where we are mining and processing. And I, I would ask you, that facility in particular, there's been policy that's been passed recently that is going to send funding to them so that they can um, open up their capabilities to processing some of these other things. Could you talk a little bit about how important that is and how that's really going to help us produce more domestically rather than um, offshoring some of this, um, some of this processing. Sure. Yes. Happy to. Now I would make one point of clarification that, you know, Mountain Pass is not the only rare earth mine in the United States, but it is the only active mine that is, you know, producing rare earth elements. And um, if you look at the U.S. Geological Survey, I mean, they're doing exploration of these mines and there's plenty of other mines that are explored and on the books. But, you know, like you say, it's, you know, the permitting and the opening of the mine and then um, separating of the material is is an important couple steps in all these other rare earth mines that MP materials um, in their ownership over Mountain Pass Mine has been able to, to bring to light in the last year. And I guess just a, a small clarification on on what they're doing. So they have their separation on site. Um, so basically, you think about it, the rocks come out of the ground, you separate the rocks from the waste. But then when it comes to the actual processing, that's what's um, taking place right now in China, because we, we don't have those capabilities here in the US. So whether that's the infrastructure, you know, I know you alluded to the policy that passed um, to support their processing facility. MP Materials is planning a processing facility in Texas, which the Pentagon has given um, millions of dollars to. It's from their Defense Production Act, which is the President's Wartime Measures Act, where he can determine amounts of money to strategic priorities. So that Texas facility is being built, and it will be a substitute for the operations that now take place overseas. Um, and I, I do credit the company. MP Materials announced that they're now um, taking those 
separate, you know, those downstream separating and processing capabilities from China and doing it in Japan with one of their new strategic partners. So that was a development just over the last week. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, if you look at the fact that they're the only ones active in the U.S. market, um, I would say that, you know, this processing stage of the rare earth elements is a serious vulnerability in our supply chain. And it's a step that GreenMet is focused on investing in to you know, replicate the success of, of that mine, hopefully across the country and with our allies. So I, I would say with NP material specifically, and if we could bring everything domestically in-house, um, obviously when we're shipping, shipping this material um, overseas, whether that's, you know, by plane, whether that's by boat, I mean, you're talking about carbon emissions, right? You're talking about carbon emissions. And if we can do everything domestically, I mean, especially if we're talking about sustainability, it's just going to be be much more helpful for not only our nation, but for our world in terms of carbon emissions. Um, so now we'll get into where you are working right now, Emma, and the really, really, really cool work that you're doing at GreenMet. We talked a little bit, at, or actually we talked a lot about rare earth elements, what their importance is, you know, what you can find rare earth elements in, um, what what products, what what um, what different materials. So now I, I want to hear about what is GreenMet and what are you doing in your company that is trying to, to I would say, combat China's stronghold, but you might say something else. Yeah, so I, I view our business as, as building something new, you know, rebuilding capabilities. So I work for Drew Horn. He was a former Green Beret. We have other Green Berets in our leadership team as well. So very, you know, national security focused team um, that's focused on accelerating the development of rare earth mineral supply chains, you know, and we make it a focus that these new rare earth supply chains are safe and reliable. Uh, we also do work in critical mineral supply chains specific to batteries. Um, so you're seeing a lot of conversations around those battery supply chains as well. Um, so what we specialize in, you know, we're not an asset owner in that we don't own a mine. We're not operating a mine in our backyard or in a desert. Um, but what we're doing is we are investing risk capital from private funds and commercial banks. You know, my boss will go out, talk to different um, individuals and groups about the need for investment in this space. And then we also find U.S. government funding that fits our projects. So we can get in later to all the money that's been made available by recent public policy and some of the policy that's coming down the hopper, I would say, this Congress. So in a way, when you find U.S. government that's on the table um, to work with private capital, there's a, you know, a real argument that you can de-risk that investment when the government's taking part of the risk for their larger national security and energy security um, goals. It brings private investors to the table um, just for the interest of bringing back this industry, which has the potential to add billions to our GDP if we're able to recover it, even in part. Yeah, I mean, uh, GreenMet, what, what you're doing is, I mean, it's not only great, but it's needed, right? We, we talked about how much it's needed um, in our last segment, talking about what are REEs and we we understand at first I'll be honest with you Emma when I researched the company um, I didn't know anything about REEs and I didn't really know the importance of what you're doing but again through research wow I mean it's it's definitely eye opening to see why this is needed and why why opening up the supply chain in the US is so 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 important so I, I would ask you I um, you'd mentioned that you work under um, CEO Drew Horn who was a former Green Beret. Um, and, and you said there was other um, Green Berets in, in the team. So how is it working with with people like that? I'm, I'm guessing very intense, um, very detailed, very competitive. So so what's it like working with them? Yeah, great question, Preston. It's great to be focused, what I would say, on a strategic mission, right, to secure U.S. energy and defense supply chains. So company leadership is locked in on finding the best, most strategic assets to build these domestic supply chains. So these guys, you know, my boss and other members of the leadership team, they have experienced on the ground defense of U.S. interests. And they even know how to bring that mentality now to the rare earth industry. So Drew Horn, he, you know, when he was a Green Beret on um, tour in Afghanistan, he encountered a rare earth deposit there that's, you know, widely known and explored. And he knows what it's like to have strategic minerals fall in the wrong hands of a geopolitical adversary. 
So I'd say that working for former Green Berets and, you know, also Drew Horn was a policy person in the last administration working with industry, it it adds the essential perspective, I think, of national security to this issue. So we prioritize sustainable, clean energy development. Like I said, the U.S. can do this better than anyone else. Um, but especially, especially in light of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, we understand now that energy security and development is tied to national security. The next thing I would ask is, from your website, I see that you have six major projects in process with a combined value of right around $2 billion. I don't know if you can speak to these projects, but if you can, what are these six projects? Yeah, I can't speak to the particular of the projects. You know, there's various um, processes of diligence that are underway and finalizing investments and finding the right match for investors. But what I can say is we're putting together a portfolio of projects with the combined value of $2 billion. And these span the battery and magnet metals, including lithium and the heavy rare earth elements. So we're also focused on bringing a domestic refinery online to do processing similar to what other companies are trying to do in in Texas and um, even in Oklahoma. Um, And we, you know, in order to bring that refinery online, it requires securing feedstocks from various domestic and international sources. So, you know, bigger than investing in, in just individual assets, we're looking to build a supply chain and reshore this processing capabilities as well. Right back to what you said earlier about the clean mining um, emphasis that that GreenMet has and, and what you're doing with with expanding and, and creating this new supply chain of, of REEs in in the U.S. That's one thing that I really, really like, because, again, through research, I've seen that um, China, they don't prioritize sustainability. They're just trying to produce product as quickly as possible. They don't care um, how, how many emissions they put into the atmosphere. Um, they're just trying to produce, 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 and and enhance their economy and enhance their their level of competitiveness in the world in general. So um, that is one thing that I'm I'm very happy to see, especially with sustainability and and what we're doing as a as a nation with sustainability. But with GreenMet specifically, um, how you're investing and using investments to to prompt cleaner mining, um, because that's Again, we talk about policy that's being passed right now that's going to affect us in 20 years from now. But the same is true with mining, right? If, if we can do cleaner methods to mining right now, we're obviously going to be affected in 20 to 50 years from now. And if we don't, if we don't use clean methods, again, we're, we're going to be negatively impacted in 20 to 50 years from now. So um, that's one thing I'm, I'm very happy that, that GreenMed is doing. So, so next, I would say... Um, in terms of policy that that specifically the last two administrations have passed to increase U.S. manufacturing and processing of REEs, I would like to discuss the Trump administration and the Biden administration's approach to rare earth mining. What are the similarities? What are the differences? And, and where where are they where were they both going with their different policies? Yes, sure. I'd, I'm proud to say that this issue of rare earth elements has been bipartisan, um, both across White House administrations and on Capitol Hill. You know, I, I would say that another function of GreenMet is to be a catalyst in D.C. for getting private industry feedback to help policymakers shape future laws that are impacting the supply chains. Um, and by being that connective tissue between, say, Wall Street and Capitol Hill and the White House, we found great reception on both sides of the aisle with both administrations. And it's part of um, the value of Drew Horn, right? He helped craft Trump's initial executive orders, which declared a national import emergency on these critical minerals and, um, you know, declared that we needed to have a list of critical minerals that we're identifying. And we need to have exploration of what minerals we have in our backyard, how we can bring those to market. And so, when President Biden was issuing his first executive orders on these issues, and he had one 14017, America's supply chains. And that focused on, you know, not only this these issues that President Trump and his administration had identified, but what are we going to do about it? You know, so I'd say that they've um, carried on this good work and had each of the agencies, you know, whether it was Department of Commerce or Department of Energy or Department of Defense, identify what are these critical supply chains under your jurisdiction and what do we need to do to secure them, whether that's publishing reports 
for, you know, asking for input from industry or even posting grant opportunities um, to explore pilot projects. That's been a huge exercise of the Biden administration to start finding real solutions that can be replicated by industry. Yeah, I would say that it almost jumps off the page um, when you're looking at something that's bipartisan, right? Right. The left and the right are agreeing on something and and both are kind of coming together and saying, hey, we need resources in this and we really need to to fix this issue and and find solutions for this issue. So um, obviously with the REEs and and, and the market and what what GreenMed is trying to do, it's bipartisan and it doesn't matter if you're Republican, if you're Democrat, if you're in between we all kind of understand what needs to happen. And I think that's really cool as well, just to see. Um, you, had, you had touched on um, Executive Order 14017, but I'd like to talk about a couple other policies that have been passed. Specifically, um, first, I'd like to talk about um, the Defense Production Act, um, which that was passed to increase domestic production of critical materials, including rare earth, funding, feasibility studies, and the expansion of new and existing sites. Could you talk a little bit on the Defense Production Act and how that's going to be important for the U.S. as, as again, we're trying to open ourselves up in this REE market? Yeah, so the unique aspect of the Defense Production Act is it was actually passed in 1950. Um, During the Korean War era, it was used in the Cold War era. And then most recently, before the critical mineral issue, it was deployed for PPE production under President Trump. And so what it's viewed as is giving the president, you know, more executive authority to authorize funds toward basically a a strategic critical capability that needs to be built up to secure the defense industrial base now. Hmm. So President Trump saw that with um, PPE. And if you just go online and do a basic search, you can see presidential uses of DPA over the past 20 years. And it's more than you'd think. But President Biden has really seized on this lever as a way to increase not only um, what I would, you know, in the specific, you, you call it an open call, an announcement from the Defense Department for um, rare earth magnets. He's also done it for large capacity batteries and a number of other green energy um, applications. So basically what happens is there is a pot of money that's allocated to the president and he, through a presidential determination, determines where this money will be allocated. And so we saw an announcement that DPA is giving an investment to an antimony mine out in Idaho. So Perpetua Resources is a gold mine that has co-production of antimony which is a critical mineral used in almost every bullet that the army fires. Mm. So I think that, so DPA is um, an act that the president can use, but it instructs an office at the Pentagon that can issue, you know, equity investments in projects. So it's a tool at the president's disposal. There's, you know, I think billions of dollars in it right now. There was even infusion of, of cash into the account from, one of the Ukraine supplementals um, showing that this defense industrial base capability of minerals um, has been depleted by our ongoing efforts to support Ukraine. So I think I'm hopeful for more announcements from the Defense Production Act um, from that office. It's the Title III office is particularly the office in the Pentagon. And um, there's a lot of applications in the pipeline. You know, everyone that has a rare earth mine that they believe can Uh, contribute to the national security needs of the Pentagon and of our country has said, hey, I've got this project and this is my budget and this is where I think the government can cost share with me and bring this um, to production. So I'm hopeful. I think we'll see more announcements over the next couple months. Awesome. Awesome. And and thank you. Thank you for touching on that, because some of that I I didn't even I wasn't even aware of. So definitely, definitely learning something on this episode as well. The the next policy I will bring up, this was passed, I guess, in 2022, and that's the Reshore Act of of Mm -hmm. 2022. And, And that was passed to encourage the extraction and processing of rare earth metals in the United States um, and for other purposes. Could you elaborate and talk on, on this policy as well? And again, why that's important for us in in this REE market. 
Yeah, so the Reshore Act, it was introduced by two senators, so Senator Tom Cotton and Mark Kelly, if that's the one I'm thinking of, and it was passed in part last year uh, through the larger legislative vehicle of the NDAA. So viewed as a critical defense component, these senators realized that defense-critical supply chains, especially those supporting our contractors in times of need, needed to have you know, greater traceability, greater um, transparency, um, and also you know, a greater ability to move into production on these strategic minerals. So that was something we were pleased to see included in the NDAA. And I know that those offices you know, still have provisions that they'd like to see you know, passed in another form this year or potentially included in the next NDAA. And and finally, um, as far as policy, I would like to talk on the bipartisan infrastructure law. We touched on it in the beginning, but this is a very, very, very important law that was passed um, that's bringing a lot of funding, um, not only to to sustainability, but to a lot of different other areas. So um, in, in the bipartisan infrastructure law, you have a lot of segments, a lot of funding going in different areas. But but what I want to talk about is this bipartisan infrastructure law um, is providing right under $3 billion to boost production of the advanced um, batteries that are critical to rapidly growing clean energy industries of the future, including electric vehicles and energy storage. Why I bring that up is because, again, we talked about lithium and we talked about um, electric vehicles. And all this goes traces back to rare earth mining and the Mm -hmm. reasoning that we need more rare earth mining um, domestically, because it's almost like a full circle. And you don't really understand this until you start looking in the policies. So with the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, there's a lot of funding going into building up um, EV charging stations around the U.S. Because right now, even if we wanted to switch entirely to electric, we can't do it. We don't have the infrastructure in place. So let's push a lot of funding to do that. Um, There's funding going in a lot of different ways, but um, I I will say there's steps to everything. And again, before we can even produce these electric vehicles that will need these charging stations um, that will limit emissions, we have to have these rare earth elements in hand to actually produce these things. So could you talk a little bit about um, this bipartisan infrastructure law and why it's important specifically in your industry? Sure. Yeah. So the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, I think it was called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, was passed in 2021. And there was many funding opportunities, many you know account lines that were opened at the Department of Energy, um, also the Department of Interior, um, to publish grants and funding announcements for companies to take advantage of um, how do we increase our domestic production in battery processing. Now, I will say that the infrastructure law did not fund mining. Uh, I think that was intentional. And that's, you know, a priority that we're still working on. And that's in the light of, you know, ongoing permitting reform, um, other issues with just public lands or, um, or what kind of energy development our, you know, current administration is prioritizing. But you saw um, just over the past year, 2022, a lot of those processing grants were issued. Um, so companies are have already been experiencing um, awards of that money. And um, you see the value of big packages and signaling not only priorities, but where governments are making investments. So that directly affects GreenMet because we're able to take that on the road and say, hey, you have a valuable project that fits the president's agenda and Congress has authorized money um, to go towards this account and, you know, the grants are being announced. So let's, you know, throw your hat in the ring. And the same is happening, you know, the CHIPS Act passed, which was, um, you know, mass, you know, large amounts of money toward the semiconductor industry. There was actually a little provision in there um, that directed the National Science Foundation to increase um, research and development into rare earth mining. So mm-hmm. there was something in there for rare earth mining. And then uh, most recently, the Inflation Reduction Act had more supports um, for and, you know, tax credits for battery processing um, and, and those, you know, what we would call advanced energy projects that are um, supporting these these end-use applications like electric vehicles that are going to need um, batteries, et cetera. You know, same with semiconductors. These are needing rare earth elements. So these large bill packages, when they are attached to funding opportunities, you know, they signal the directions of markets, I think, not only for consumer demand, um, but the ability for the government 
um, and the willingness for the government to partner in investment um, to increase supply and hopefully in the short run, right? We don't want a government subsidized industry in the long run, um, but we want just enough government risk capital to partner with private industries um, before we can you know, fully be confident that the market will um, in- increase and-, and grow up to our previous domestic capabilities. I'll say that where I live, it's a heavily red area. So um, any anything about Democrats or Democrats in leadership, a lot of times people will just turn their head and, and disagree with. But what I've learned is specifically looking at policy, it's like, wow, what the Biden administration is doing for sustainability is incredible. I mean, you have all of these acts and you have, again, with if you're talking about rare earth elements and how you're using investments in this um, to bring about electric vehicles and to bring about all of these other things, um, it's just really cool to see what the, the administration that's currently in office is doing and the policies that they're passing and the funding that they're pushing um, in these areas. Because again, I'll go back to it. I mean, we talk about how is this going to affect us in 20 to 50 years from now? Well, if we build up infrastructure, specifically for electric vehicles, if we bring a lot of this rare earth mining in-house um, domestically, then wow, I, in 50 years from now, it's it's positive. Like I, I see, I see a lot of positive happening. Um, and, you know, I go back to to the right versus the left because um, it, it's it's annoying to me a lot because um, for people that are on either side, they don't really read into what the opposite side is proposing and what they're doing because they're, they're opposite of what they're doing. So I, I would encourage people just to look at policy and look at and look at what's being passed because it is so important. Um, and, and I really applaud what the Biden administration is doing right now in the policies that they're passing. And really, a lot of the stuff that um, the Trump administration had laid a foundation on, they're using to to continue. So I just hope whatever administration is next that comes in office, that they do the same thing um, and that they look at what the U.S. needs um, right now. Obviously, I mean, we can see we need advancements in the semiconductor market. We need advancements in the REE market. We need um, investments in sustainability. And I mean, I just really applaud the Biden administration for doing that. Um, and, and really, I would just say, I, I hope that people will turn off the news, just turn it off um, and, and really just dive into this policy and a lot of the stuff that Emma is talking about, because it'll really open your eyes to different things and really show you the strategy that the administration is using. Yeah, yeah, I, they've done a lot of great work in investing in this industry, and I'm optimistic that you know after permitting reform and um, possibly you know some other tax credits that are in the legislative hopper for this session, um, that we will actually be able to have more mining in this country to unleash the mineral wealth that we have to then support these supply chains um, that have been invested in at the midstream and downstream level. So lots of excitement ahead. Um, it's been great to talk to you on all these issues and definitely follow GreenMet on social media for updates in the industry and, and for our future announcements on on deals that we're investing in. So Emma, lastly, um, I, I asked every everybody that comes on the show these last, these last three questions. They're very vague um, and I, I really do it just so people can listen and understand that a lot of people have the same answer. They might come to the answer in a different way, but it all kind of comes back to, to, to the same answer. So the first question I would ask you is, why is sustainability important? Sustainability is important because it's leaving a place better than you found it. I think it's entering into whether that's a business deal or an operation or a community um, with integrity and with, I would say, prudence and how you interact with the people in that community. And kind of like what we talked about with mine waste, you know, how are we cleaning that up in a way that we're leaving it better, you know, for the generations to come and for the workers that are going to come after us. Next question is, and I mean, this was, we, we talked about this in the beginning a little bit, was what is the importance of educating our youth on mineral basics? Um, because Again, I mean, I, I just look at a lot of things that um, specifically other nations are doing in terms of education, and I feel that we're behind in, in a sense in, in certain areas. So what is the importance of educating our youth on mineral basics? I think the importance of educating youth on mineral basics is an understanding of supply chains, that everything you use 
you know, if you use, uh, if you use an iPhone, if you use, you know, uh, a computer, if you're use, if you're even riding in your mom's car and, you know, that has the windows that go up and down, you know, minerals are affecting you. And we want to know where our supply chains come from. And so having an understanding of what minerals are involved in and where we get our minerals from is not only a source of just awareness of, of consumer products and capabilities of our country, but it can also foster national pride. Um, and, and I would say if we look at some of the sources of our minerals today, um, I don't know that we can say with you know, full confidence that we have pride in those sources, how they were accomplished and um, what environments they were extracted in. So there's a lot of potential. And I believe in young Americans and their bright minds and um, the constitutional principles that we stand on in this country. So engaging them in the mineral industry, I think, would only support our future capabilities. Yeah, hopefully in the future we can um, stick more made in made in the U.S. stickers on our minerals. There um, we go. But but I would say Emma, thank you so much for coming on our show, um, the Green Hour. It, it has been incredible to hear not only your past experience, but what you're doing right now with GreenMet, and and what you're doing to to really bring the supply chain for REEs in house, and again how that's going to affect us in the next twenty to fifty years. So. Thank you so much for coming on. And I cannot wait to, to share this with our listeners. Yes, great. Thanks for having me, Preston.